Hey, what's up? You're listening to Eastman's Elevated with Brian Barney. So today on the episode, um, we're celebrating 30 years of being in business at Eastman's Hunting Journal. Um, this was all started by Mike Eastman, and I got a chance to sit down with him and and talk over the the start of the company. Uh, Mike's just a great storyteller, and 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 he tells this story of the trials and tribulations and dedication and perseverance it took. Um, you know, as well as as that, we also get into kind of the olden days of hunting and and uh, get into the kind of the first film stuff that he did. It's just an amazing story. You guys are really gonna like it. Um, today's episode is brought to you by Beyond the Grid uh, Internet TV show. So this was started by Eastman's, and maybe you guys have heard me talk about it, but it's it's run by Dan Bacar and Guy Eastman, and and Dan Bacar has put a lot of work in this, and and, and it's a internet specific TV show. So it, it's not on um, TV; it's just on the internet, you know, which is the the future of TV, really. But uh, they they go on there, and and uh, then we've got two episodes up. The third episode is about ready to be released. But it, it's just awesome because you don't have to conform to TV, you know, as far as telling the story. You don't got to go into a commercial break and then come back and, and get started again five minutes later and, and tell, like, the whole background story to get people involved. You just get to tell the story through and through from start to finish. Um, also, you don't have to conform to some of the rules on the – on the TV networks, you know, so you can show a kill shot over and over. You can slow it down. Um, you can actually shoot a bedded animal, which I did not know that rule this year when I was being filmed. You guys are just lucky, or I guess I'm really lucky that they can even air my episode. Because if I would have got a bedded muley buck, I would have shot him, you know, and went to thought twice about it. But that is a rule on, on TV is that you can't shoot a bedded animal. And so, anyways, this internet TV show is just great. And Eastman's is putting out... Um, one a month, and and uh, we're about ready to release the the third episode. So this should be really cool, guys. Go check it out. Um, also, I just wanted to mention um, we've got a bill right now in the house that was started by uh, Jason uh, Chavez from Utah, and, and this bill. I mean, it's it's going to sell off our public lands, and, and this is something that's so important to me that I just wanted to mention to it. It's called H.R. 621, and you guys have probably already seen about it, but but just get involved and do your part. Um, you know, contact your, your senator for your state and, and contract, contact your House representative, um, you know, a uh, you can write them a letter, send them an email, um, but just make your voice heard. The other thing you want to do, you know, there's this great organization called Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. I'm a member of it. I donate to them. They do a great job of fighting for our public lands. And they also have like a forum on their website um, where you don't even have to take the time to type a letter to your to your house representative. They've got it all pre-planned where you just put in your email and put in your address and, and hit send and it sends a letter, you know, just so we can make our voice heard. But this is real, guys. They're, they're trying to sell off our public lands, you know, so they can they can profit from it. And, and we need to stop it, you know, right now. And so, so get involved. Join that organization. Make sure you send a letter to your senator and your house representative. And let's do all we can to, to keep public public lands public. Um, so yeah, let's get this thing rolling. Uh, Mike East. Oh, I also say, um, I also say we're now live. Like I've got to get out of this habit of doing this on this, on Eastman's elevated. So every time I, I start a new podcast, I say, okay, we're live with this. I am never live. It's always recorded. So anyways, another habit I have to break at this podcasting, but let's get this thing rolling. Mike Eastman. Here we go.
Okay, so we're live here with Ike Eastman and Mike Eastman. Mike, how's it going? Pretty good for an old guy. Yep. Yeah, good. Um, well, yeah, I got you in here. So we're 30 years here at Eastman's, and um, we've partnered here on the podcast, and, and I've been writing here for a little bit. Um, it was just a, a dream to be able to work for Eastman's. I grew up as a kid reading all the magazines and watching all the videos and gathering as much information as I could about Western hunting, and uh, Eastman's was, was just the first resource that we really had to learn about that. I'm just interested how you got Eastman's going and how you had the vision for Eastman's to become what it's become today. Well, I, I grew up in Jackson Hole, and when you tell people that, they go, oh, rich people, and there wasn't. Jackson, which is Teton County in Wyoming, was the poorest county, believe it or not, in the state of Wyoming. It was so poor that the federal government loaned some money to two guys to build a ski area so there was work for some of the people in the wintertime. That's how poor Jackson Hole was back in the 50s and 60s. But my dad kind of isolated me and my two brothers away from, you might say, the rest of the world. And we literally grew up in the wildernesses around Jackson. I, I was a, first of all a guide and then I became an outfitter. And these are packing hunts in the wilderness. This isn't truck hunting bouncing around in some ranch somewhere. And so I did a lot of hunting. Did a, I helped my dad, father film. My dad did a lot of uh, outdoor. He was a pioneer in outdoor filming back in the 50s and 60s. And living in Jackson Hole, was we had a lot of wildlife there. And when I was 14, my dad bought a Pintax with a 500 millimeter lens, showed me how to take stills, and told me, he always called me, hey, kid, go out there. Now you're 14, you can drive. Just drive all over Jackson Hole and take photos of wildlife. So I, I did that. So that's kind of the, my background. And then we go up in Canada in the summertime in the Cassiar Mountains in British Columbia. In fact, my dad had a homestead up there. And he did um, several movies up there, outdoor hunting, literally hunting movies and went into theaters, if you can believe that, back then, that he could do that. So... Uh, after I got done outfitting, I kind of just pounded nails in Jackson and working out a living like everybody else was doing there. And my father took all these, all these films and put them on video. And then he needed someone to sell them to video stores. And at that time, you couldn't just call up a video store and go, you know, say, hey, I got these hunting films. Let me send them to you. They're 45 bucks a piece. They were VH. Yeah, VH. Uh, on VH. He, put them on VH, you had to go around and go into these stores because you didn't know where the stores were. They were popping up like weeds all over the country. So literally, I got in a vehicle and and went all over the country peddling my dad's videos. And I went to states. I I take a whole state, like Pennsylvania. Uh, It took me eight weeks to do Pennsylvania, and I'd go to every town in Pennsylvania. I'd fly into Pittsburgh, rent a car, and go all over to all these towns, go into this video store and say, hey, I got something here that uh, hasn't been expounded on. And, you know, Pennsylvania was a big hunting state. And those guys look, those those owners look at those videos because half of them were hunting and their eyes get real big and go, boy, I'm going to rent the heck out of these things. <laughs> so I did that for two or three years. And while I did it, one time uh, a video store called me up and said, listen, we'd like to have you come and lecture in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. And we'll, we'll pay your expenses. Uh, fortunately, I was, doing, I was doing the big Pennsylvania show there, which is the biggest outdoor show. 
Harrisburg. At Harrisburg mm-hmm. in the country. And I was selling my dad's videos and, and I had this little newsletter type thing. It was only four pages, but actually what it was, it had a couple stories in it, but it really was selling videos and selling some other junk I had, you know, and it was and so I was there doing that and the guy said, Why don't you come up Saturday and um, you can lecture on hunting out west? And I'm going, Oh, okay. I had my one of my dad's films and I had it on film on 16 millimeter so I said I you know they'll get a cry you know maybe 30 40 people I'll I'll do this deal I never lectured in my life you know <laughs> and you know I'll, I'll do this and so I drove up there I think it was like 60 miles from Harrisburg I think or something and it was it was raining and this is in the winter time but it's sleeting and I go well they're not gonna have very many people and I come around the corner Heading for it because he rented the auditorium at the school, and there was a crowd for four blocks waiting to get into this place. I'm going, God, well, what they got going on in there? And I walk in there, and, and I come to find out they're all waiting to hear me talk. <laughs> so he filled the whole thing up 500 people. Wow. And he got most of the money and he paid me a couple hundred bucks. That <laughs> sounds about but right. But when I started talking to these people, I had an intermission and talking to these guys, you know, in Pennsylvania, most of all Pennsylvania is private. They didn't know that they could come out here and hunt on public land and they didn't know how to hunt. They didn't know anything about big game hunting, Western big game hunting. It was always a dream to these guys and some of them had been saving for years and years just to get enough money to go with an outfitter out here and on and on and on. So... Uh, that kind of put a seed in, in my head. And then about a year and a half later, I became a rep. A friend of mine uh, became friends with a, a rep group owner named Mike Wick, and, and he needed somebody out west. So I became a, a rep out here. And I'd go around to all the sporting goods stores and the, uh, the archery shops, selling them, and I'll have the 18 lines. And I could go on, I, and they always have boards sitting there with all the people who would kill pretty good animals. And I'd, I'd pick up those photos, get the guys' names, and I'd call them up, and they'd send me in stories. And like I told my wife one time, I was thumbing through um, one of these magazines. I go, look at these little animals. These guys are trying to tell people how to hunt. Look at that little, you know, little buck. And I, I, she, <laughs> she said, well, why don't you start your own magazine? I said, yeah. Yeah, why don't I start my own magazine? I hadn't have I didn't have two nickels to rub together, so uh, so I did. I got these guys to do their stories. Most of the time, I had to I had to call them up and tape their story, and then have my wife write it for them because they couldn't write. You know, they just talk about their stories, and I take their photos and put it in there. And we started desktop publishing off of Mac Five Twelve. See, it all kind of come together. Suddenly, you could get a Mac, a Mac Five Twelve. And you get a little program that you could, you could, you could do layout in instead of having to do it the old-fashioned way. And then you know it just kind of all went together. So I started publishing when it first started. In fact, when they went to digital to plate, we were one of the few magazines in the country that the printer, a big printing company, one of the biggest ones in the United States, used us as a guinea pig to go from digital to plate. And this is getting too complicated, I know, but. But we, I started right at the bottom of doing it. People laughed. They called it desktop publishing. They thought it was so funny that somebody would actually try to publish anything off a, with a computer. <laughs> so 
that's how I got started. I said, I'll do these stories and I'll help these guys. And, um, and that's the first, the real, the real magazine, the first real magazine was only 30 pages and it was done on newspaper for gosh sakes. Well, and I remember the old magazines just used to have uh, pictures and then a short write-up, and it was just full of trophy pictures in mm-hmm. there, uh, bowls and bucks. And um, I remember thumbing through there, and then and then over the years, it just kept evolving and kept mm-hmm. being a, a better resource. You kept you, you had that vision to see what was coming, and, and then you started doing uh, pro staff articles, and you started writing articles in there, and then always have your photography in there as well. <laughs> well, yeah, it was... Um... It was what restrained it. I had that vision, but what restrained it was, number one, money and the ability to do it. Mm-hmm. And because it would cost a lot to put a lot of photos. To give you an example, we would do a cover would be four color, and that would be it. And that cover, to print that cover, just the color separations was $500. Oh, wow. So you couldn't do a whole four color, you know, hey, I didn't have any advertising. The other vision at first was there was no advertising. It was solely supported by subscriptions. And, but the turning point to that was I was reading an article in Shutterbug one time and they were talking about these new scanners that you could scan photos in and electronically that go into your computer and then you could place them and then once you got them placed in there, then you, you could spit it out and they could make plates off those by sh- shooting, making film, and then plates. Mm-hmm. plates. And so I went out and borrowed the money and got the, uh, the first tower computer that Apple made. And then I got the scanner. And I didn't know how to work the scanner. I didn't know how to do any of that, but I knew it could be done. And my son, oldest son Guy, was going to Purdue as an engineer, getting an engineer degree. He came home from Christmas to Christmas one time, that time, and here's this stuff sitting there. I said, Guy, read all this and tell me how we do this. <laughs> and we bought Photoshop, See, the first line of Photoshop. You had to have Photoshop so that it goes into Photoshop. Mm-hmm. To make a long story short, he showed me how to do it, and so I was able to scan more photos. So that's why suddenly it got economical, not for color inside, but I could put, I usually would scan 110 to 200 photos in each magazine. And I did all the scanning myself and all the tweaking of the photos. I'd sit there, scan them, they'd go in. The first time we did it, that tower had one gig, one gig hard drive in it. I filled it up before the magazine, I even got the magazine after. (laughs) So I called up the Apple people and I says, hey, you got anything bigger than one gig? And they said, yeah, the biggest one they make is two gigs. And I think it cost me $2,500 for that two gig hard drive. And so they came and put it in and it was barely enough because those photos were taking up so much, you know, so much room. Mm-hmm. But that was a turning point where I could do all that at home and it really got economical so that when you said you sit there and looked at that magazine and had all those photos in, that was when the turning point digitally you could you could do that. Oh, I see. And and then how did you sell subscriptions or how did you push the mag? There was uh, no internet. There was there was oh, no way to advertise or how did you get the word out about the magazine? How did you make things work to actually make a buck on that? Um, or did I you? thought well, <laughs> I thought 
well, you know, this is a good magazine. This is what we all like to look at, big heads, guys telling about how they hunted mm -hmm. and took a big animal or whatever at Western. I said, oh, I'll get 5,000 subscribers in one year, no problem. In three years, I'll have 30, 40,000 subscribers. This will be a great deal. Well, after the first four months, I had about, I don't know, 75, 100 people. <laughs> so this isn't working the way I thought it was going to work. It was hard. And it took, to be, to be honest with you, it took, it took five years before the magazine actually paid for itself. Oh, wow. And it took, what is it, maybe eight years to get the first 6,000 or 7,000 subscribers. And I figured out how, kind of how to do it, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't really, really easy. And that's where these other people try to do it, and they, they think how easy it's going to be, and it isn't. Hey, it was the same thing happened in the video market. Everybody thought, okay, I'll do a hunting video. Look, all these hunters. If I only get 1% of the hunters, I'm going to sell 250,000 of these videos. Mm -mm. You might sell 100 or 200 of them. See, they, huh. they just... But I built a base and how I did it, and I kept it kind of secret only to people that got the magazine. I literally had to go around, pack my bags, and I'd lecture for two weeks all over. Like I'd go to California for two weeks and then come home exhausted, and then I'd go to Oregon for two weeks, and I did my own little shows, and I'd get anywhere from 100 people and sometimes 500 people and I'd sell subscriptions there, and it cost them eight dollars to come in, and I'd do a two-hour show using the video that I I'd shot the, the fall before hunting and stuff like that, and it was hard away from my family, and all these guys that try it now, they couldn't stay away, they can't stay away that they can I, I like I said, I would never do it again. It, it was extremely hard, but I built up a really good base of people. And they got to talk to me. <clears throat> and then uh, we expanded by going to shows. And then at one time, for two years, I was doing my own shows. We had Roger Sillner with the Elk Tour. He was doing shows and selling, selling them. And I had another guy in Oregon that was doing shows. And he was selling the subscriptions. And then I had a guy down in Arizona that had the world's record uh, typical bull elk and he was doing four or five shows and he was selling so at one time for two years I had all these people selling them and it just kind of you know built built up does that answer your question oh for sure more than answer your question yeah no uh it's so interesting boy you had to have such a commitment to the magazine and a commitment to and, and I bet you wondered if it was going to work out or if you could actually make this into a job or make it profitable at the time. My wife did. She, <laughs> um, I had no other alternative. Yep. I wasn't, I wasn't wealthy. I was just an outfitter that sold out and was pounding nails. And people get that stigma that because my name is Eastman, I must have been some kind of like Eastman Kodak baby, bonus baby with money or something. No, I... I was just, just like any other stiff, and I'd run home after 10 days out there with a stash of money, and it'd be barely enough to pay the printing and keep the lights on for years and years and years and years and years. Tell me a story, tell me a story about the hotel. That's one of my, one of my I, I guess, the one where you convinced the hotel get the home. Oh, I was so broke. 
they have these things called ISE shows. Mm -hmm. And I, I started doing those before I started lecturing. And I did those for two, three years. And then I had the bright idea, well, why don't I lecture on a Saturday night in Sacramento at one of, you know, when I was there doing these ISC shows. Mm -hmm. And I did, and I got like 400 people there. So um, that the light went off about doing these lectures instead of those shows. So I didn't do those shows for about eight years. But when I was doing, the first time I did the show, I flew in, I flew in to Sacramento. I didn't know the airport's 26 miles from the town. I flew in there with 30... Google Maps didn't, didn't tell you that? No, Google Maps. No, I couldn't find Google Maps. I tried like hell. I couldn't find it. Um, I had uh, 50 bucks in my pocket. And so I got... And, and, I, and, I, and I made reservations at a Super 8, and I didn't know. I just said I was in Sacramento. So And this, this the show was down there at the... Um, was Expo. Sorry. Expo in, in Sacramento. Cal Expo. Cal Expo. And I, I so and the reason I did a Super 8, because in a Super 8, I had this card, and I could cash a, a check at a Super 8 for 25 bucks. And that's how I was doing when I was repping, too. That's how I didn't have any money. And, and every day, I'd write a check at the Super 8 for 25 bucks for gas and a hamburger when I was out repping. But So anyway, this, this taxi driver takes me into Super 8, Cost me 35 bucks. So all I had is like, I don't know, 10, 15 bucks left. Uh, and I don't even know where the Cal Expo is. And so this woman told me, and I go, oh, this ain't going to work. And so I bummed a ride from somebody over to it and I had all my stuff. I set up all my stuff at the, you know, just before the show. And I had no place to stay. And, uh, a guy across, this, across from me was an outfitter out of Oregon, and he, he sat up there, and we started talking, and he says, well, I'm staying over at the Red Lion. I go, hmm, maybe, I, I wonder if I can get in there. See, I had no credit card, I had nothing. And so I, he gave me a ride. You had to go up and over the freeway, too. So he gave me a ride that day, and I walk in there, and I said, I'd like to stay here. Okay, I feel loud, you know, okay. And I, I said, uh, listen, I can uh, only pay every day cash. Is that going to work? Can I talk to the manager? So I talked to the manager, and he was a hunter. And he knew about my father's films. And he said, he said you look honest. Okay, but you got to pay every morning. I said, okay, I'll pay every morning. And I think at that time it was like 80 bucks. So this guy, this outfitter, would take me over. I'd sit, I'd sit in a booth trying to sell subscriptions. Oh, God, I got 80 bucks. Do I have like 100 bucks so I can get a hamburger? And, and I'd sell, and people would walk by. And I'd go, people, don't look, look what I got right here. And people just, but I'd sell a few, I'd sell a few. And then every night he'd shuffle me over the top into the motel room, the, the Red Lion, and I'd pay him their 80 bucks, and I'd sleep, and I'd get up, and I did. And that's, and that, that first year, that's, that's what I did. And you know, that guy, is still going to that show. And the last time I was there two years ago, him and I sat around and talked. He's still, and he has a booth in the same spot he'd had, and that's 30 years ago. But that is how broke I was and how hard it was to do. And at one time, at one time, I, we went to the Mule, uh, it was called Mule Deer Show down in Salt Lake, the first one they started, these guys started this, 
so they wanted me to lecture, and I and it was pre Mule Deer Foundation. Yeah, pre Mule Deer Foundation, <clears throat> and uh, they had it in Salt Lake, and so we we had a booth, and I was going to lecture, and I told my wife, I said, if we can't sell a hundred subscriptions down there, I said we're going to just unplug this. This is just getting too hard, and at that time we still lived in Jackson Hole. That's before we moved. And we went down there, and I think we sold 110 subscriptions or something. So we kept going. Yeah, so barely. <laughs> that's almost one of those things going, maybe I should have made it 150 subscriptions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't have to be doing this. But, you know, people think it's such a great deal, but, but it, it, extremely hard. And you go out and you lecture 10 or 15 days straight. And there was times I was doing it by myself. And I mean, I'm, I'm running the money, I'm doing my show, and at the break I'm taking money for like t-shirts and subscriptions. And, and I would look around for an honest, honest face in the crowd and say, hey buddy, would you help me? Oh sure, I'll help you. He could, somebody get behind and help me during the break and then after, and then i tear it all down and i put it in that little Honda, I had a Honda Civic. Everything went in there, including the two deer. I had Popeye and had another one named Champ, two great big non-typicals. Mm -hmm. And I could take the antlers off of them, put those two deer in that and all my stuff and go to the next town and spend the night. And I take those antlers out and put them in a room with me. I was scared somebody would break in and steal them because they weren't mine. You and some I, of your best friends from there. Huh? Fred Trueblood, one of your yeah. best friends, was one of those honest faces. Right, that helped me. But I get home and I couldn't do anything for four days with sleep. It, it really is draining when you, night after night after night and, and, and having to set up and get everything so the, the audio was correct. And because every, every place would be a little different how they set stuff up and I'd have all my own equipment, my own, my own little amplifier and everything. And, and it would be really stressful for me until I had it all set up. And then I'd you know, take the money and and that's how it started. Oh my gosh, what what a sacrifice and um, what commitment to it to make it work. And like you say, at the time, it was your only option. You were going to make it work and going to make it happen. Right. But man, oh man, and then the stress of the whole deal of just wondering how you're going to pay for the hotel, how you're going to pay for the next printing, how you're going to get the next magazine out. Um, I, I can't imagine. It's absolutely unbelievable. And uh uh, well, and then try to get some hunting in too. Did you hunt at all in those um, first five years when you were launching it? Oh, yeah, I, I hunted. I mean, you know, I grew up hunting and mm -hmm. was an outfitter and guide, and I, I hunted. My brothers and my dad were doing hunting videos at that time when I was first started this, and um, I shouldn't go on that. That's a, another family thing. But I, I didn't video until about the third, fourth year, maybe third or fourth year, I got a video camera and it was a one chip camera. And that's a whole story about the TV show. I could go into that. That even was, but yeah, I did, I did hunt and took photos and did, you know, stories in the magazine about, you know, how to do this, how to do that. Um, but I was pretty busy because I was a one man show until I moved to Thermopolis. And then I got uh, a guy named Rod Hart, who was a, a, a guide that I knew that guided for my brother in his hunting camp, and I knew Rod, and he was from Thermopolis, and he came over, and 
he says, you know, you need some help? And I says, it'd be nice because I have to travel. My wife's having to put the magazine. She put the magazine together for 20 years, mm -hmm. you know, on desktop, basically with InDesign before it was InDesign. And so Rod kind of become my editor. And he says, well, I got to, <laughs> it's really funny. He says, I got to move hay for the next two weeks, but I'll be free after that. I said, okay. And he kind of learned touch typing in high school, but he never did it. And I guess he went down in his basement and got out an old typewriter. And for two weeks, he sat there and practiced typing. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd come to work. And Rod was really good because Rod had been, been down the road too. He knew Honey and... And when I say these guys, he was guiding, he's like me, guiding in the wilderness where you got a pack and with pack horses and you know, guiding elk and deer hunters. This isn't, you know, bumping around in a pickup like a lot of stuff like this, this nowadays. But so he really knew he could look at a story and he could tell if it was right or wrong or if somebody was blowing smoke up your ass or whatever, you know, because he'd been there and done that. So he worked for me for 10 or 12 years. So. I was, so it was started in 87, technically. Is that when you were doing the newsletter, or is that yeah. the first real issue? No, that was the, that newsletter. It was just, 1987. Just to give the, the audience a timeline. So it was like 1987, and then you started, you made it the first five years, which would have been like 92, and then it probably got 8,000 subscribers, mm -hmm. 95, something mm -hmm. like that. And then it, when did you quit? Because you were a rep, a archery rep for some of that time but I, oh, yeah. I don't remember what year it was 94 95 when you quit doing that when the magazine became your soul for soul hustle or your soul amount yeah I, I quit repping when the magazine made enough profit I figured that, that Bernie and I could could live off of, which wasn't very much live so I had to quit repping because it got so it got so big you know that it took all my time and basically all my time going and lecturing because mm -hmm. I did that for 10 12 years mm -hmm. I mean, you probably won't believe this now but I used I got pretty good at it getting in front of a crowd and, mm -hmm. and I did it for probably more than that plus if you ask if you even count the ISC shows I did afterwards after I quit lecturing for myself I probably lectured for 20 years the last lecture tour mm -hmm. you did <clears throat> was in 2007 I believe was it was when you went to Washington and I and then I went to South Dakota that year right and North Dakota same, same, same year, year. Yeah. and I quit I quit I just said you know I just tired of doing it and being away from uh, you know I literally wasn't around when my two sons and daughters were ready, you know in their high school years and I never hardly saw my wife you know, and she was right behind it. and she was doing the magazine. So she was busy doing the magazine and running the books on it. And uh, um, that's the cool commitment that uh, that it took to get where where we where we are. Man, it's so wild because there was no path or there was no template. It it was just something that you started that you kept growing as you went, and I think the only reason it succeeded was your knowledge in Western hunting, like a, like you say, doing the seminars and being able to talk. But you could you could walk you could talk the talk, but you were also walking the walk, being an outfitter and a guide for so many years, and then and then also your personal hunting experience and being able to kill some of these big bulls and big bucks. That's why you could get guys to pay attention and buy subscriptions and. And, and and keep furthering the brand. It was um, 
I, I've never had anybody come up and tell me I don't know what I'm talking about because I do. But one of the things too is I, my dad told me one time when I was working for him when he was selling these videos, and it's probably kind of, I'm not bragging, but he said I was one of the best marketers he ever saw. And what I did was when I was, uh, what was I, 15 years old, my dad did a film in Jackson Hole that he used go around and tour and show. And in there I killed a three, actually it was a 350 bull, it was 50 inches wide. And I told my dad this bull's down there. My dad was busy in a, in a packing hunt filming and stuff. And so uh, he, the day he came out, I went down there by myself and I bugled this bull in and I shot him and I, and I gutted him out and I ran home and my dad just got home and I said, Dad, I got a bull down here in the river bottom, I, do you want to take film of it? And he says, oh, oh sure, sure. And he didn't, and when he walked up to it, he goes, holy smokes. So he make a long story short, he he filmed it. Well, I got that film. So here's Mike Eastman at the age of 15. You know, I'm 68 now. At the age of 15 with a 350 bull, and I use that footage a lot. So there wasn't people going, well, I don't know if you ever, you know, hunted. And there's another piece of footage of me and Gordon, my, I call him Gordon, my father filmed me and I was I was standing there in a Quaker patch and I had a little, <laughs> a little um, a piece of uh, copper plumbing pipe that I made into a whistle and I, a bugle. And I'm 15 years old and I'm whistling and, and on the hillside behind me is a 340 bull standing there bugling back at me. So I use this foot, these, these clips like that to help, you know, brand and same with mule deer hunting and stuff. This is in the 60s. This was 61, maybe 60. Well, how old? You would have been, it have been 62. 62 then, mm -hmm. 15 years old from that, whatever. Mm -hmm. So... There might be somebody has some of that of themselves, and I'm sure there is, but I used, I was able to use that, and so so people listened to me. And I didn't have some old guy come up to me and tell me I didn't know what I was doing, because maybe he hunted a little different than me, but still he knew. And you had that big, huge, 30-inch wide mule deer you shot in the Tetons right before all of this happened. Oh, yeah, my brother, yeah, yeah. I, my brother was trying to, my dad and brother were partners and they split up. And so my brother was trying to do a mule deer hunting video mm -hmm. and he couldn't get a kill scene. And he come whining to me and I was doing the magazine. And I said, well, let's go up here and into, and they had a Phillips, because that was one of my, in my hunting area. I said, we'll go up there. I know a pocket in there. There's always some bucks in there. We'll go in there and uh, you can video and I'll just pop a buck in there. And he said, oh, okay. And now you got to realize back then there was there was no there was no mule deer hunting video out there. The only video was a couple white tail videos that 3M did, and they were, didn't have any kill scenes. There was no kill scene, no nothing. And so him and I went up in there, and uh, and we took a buddy of ours that had we call him Llama Louie. He had some llamas, and we packed in, put a camp up, walked right over, walked right. And looked right down the basin, and here's four bucks standing there, just like some God put them there. And I picked out the biggest one, which is 30 inches. And I missed the first shot, and the buck came around a scrub pine, and I shot again. And it was all on film. I hit him, and that sucker just rolled down the hill. And he's way in the bottom of this huge big basin in the Tetons. So 
we went down there and gutted him out, set him, propped him up, went back up, and then the next morning we took the llamas and went down there and videoed all that, and it was called mule deer action. And then, then Rod says, well, gee, you know, we need more than just this one kill scene. I said, well, and I used to go out to the winter range myself. This is before anybody did. What I call the winter range down in Pine Deal and Big Piney. All those deer uh, were migrating out of the Hoback and out of... Uh, out of the uh, Wyoming, range. Wyoming range and all that country, and they wintered down. And I knew they did because I hunted them as a kid mm -hmm. back in the early 60s when you could kill three mule deer bucks. On the winter range. On the winter range. Wow. Yeah, yeah, well, you could say it was kind of like maybe not fair chase, but <laughs> back then that wasn't even a, an issue. So I said, well, let's go down there. And so we went down there, and he filmed, he filmed all those bucks. And we filmed a buck we called, uh, him and Albert was with with us. Albert's a, probably one of the finest mule deer hunters in, uh, in the country, all these other guys, you know, but he, he, he is. Um, but anyway, uh, so we filmed, that's the first year we filmed Morty, which became, I made Morty famous because Rod let me use the footage of Morty that we filmed on the winter range in my lectures. But anyway, so I said, I'll show you all this. And, I, you know, I killed that mule deer on your film, but you got to mention my magazine. He said, oh, yeah, I'll do that. Well, he didn't mention my magazine in the mule deer action. And so I was selling his mule deer action videos. And um, I said, you know, I should be making my own. So then I started making my own. But that was, that was the first, and I sold thousands and thousands of them. And uh, then I did my own. And the, my first one, I never even shot. I got gathered footage up from everybody, and I had it done. And I remember Ike helping me. I had a stack of them in, in the garage we had to send out to people. Yeah. 5,000 of them. Yeah. And he's in there. <laughs> I'm like 13 years old yeah. for three weeks in July in a right. garage, putting videos in envelopes and putting labels on them. And sending them out. And um, kind of getting back called, to this. Uh, Mule Deer Stalker. Mule Deer Stalker 1. I did four of them. Well, no, the original was Mule Deer Stalker. Mule Deer Stalker, and yeah. And then there was a 1. And then it was 1. So there was five of them. And the last one, no, it was the third one, I had Popeye. I videoed Popeye, mm -hmm. and I made him famous. And I made Morty famous. And these bucks kept coming into the same winter range. And that's how all this started. And these people talk about the winter ranges. And, and now there's a buck, I won't say where in Wyoming, and they're all running around trying to take pictures of him. Mm -hmm. And... This is all before any of that, even even people even thought of that. But mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, getting back to a little bit more, why people came to my lectures and why they wouldn't probably come now is back then there was no outdoor television mm -hmm. hunting. And so I was showing people big non-typical mule deer, like Popeye that, that is 40 inches on film, or Morty who scored in the 200s, and other bucks, and double drop bucks, and they've never seen any of that. So they come to my show, and that's why they came, because they couldn't get that anywhere else. And so that's why the crowds the crowds were coming at that time. Now, they, they see that all over. They see it on YouTube. They see it everywhere. So they wouldn't really, I don't think, come just to listen to me talk about it hunting or, or whatever, but, but that's kind of how I got started, and we started selling videos, and I can remember, um, I said, you know, I had to go on TV, I, I tried years before to get my dad to do it, he said, what's wrong here, 
I got after edit 12 of those. I got to edit 12 of those. That's crazy. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. You know, I'm oh, okay. So for about four years, I did these videos and sold them. And I had, well, I don't know, 12 or 14 different videos. So I called up the Outdoor Channel and says, you know, what does it take to be on your TV show? And this is 1999. He said, well, you, you got to film with this camera and, and, uh, and you got to have 12 in the can. And I said, well, this is just going to all be big game hunting. He starts laughing. He says, oh, nobody can do all Western big game hunting. He says, come back and see me when you get 12 of them in a can. I says, I got 12 of them in a can. And he, he, didn't, he didn't say a word for 20 seconds. <laughs> he says, you really? Oh, yeah. I've been, I filmed all this for the last three or four years. I, I got 12 of these. I can have them all to you in a month and a half if you want. And so I, that, I was the original just Western big game hunting TV show and started in 1999 on the Outdoor Channel and it was original broadcasting and most of their stuff all their stuff except for their pan, gold panning who were the guys that started it started the Outdoor Channel was all reruns from from the other channels Mossy Oak and <coughs> TNN re, yeah TNN Realtree mm -hmm. they did take the reruns and give it to this Little little outdoor channel thing over here, and and then they'd be rerun there. But mine was uh, original broadcasting, and I didn't for the first three years, four years, I didn't edit them. Oh, my two years, I didn't edit them. I had them done somewhere else where I'd go and tell the editor, okay, put this in, put this in, stop right here, put this in, put this. Put this fade in here. Put this kill scene in there. Oh, this is wrong. Cut right here. Do this. Do, you know, the guy didn't know anything about hunting. I, I, I did everything but run the computer. And then so then I said, well, this is nonsense. So I learned, self-learned how to use Final Club Pro 1 when it first came out. And then I, I did all my own, all my own DVDs. I did all my own television shows myself personally. And um, so I was able to kind of develop my own style, which is gone now but my own style and I narrated myself I never had a script I always just maybe it showed but I always just looked at it and and winged it when I come to narrating the, the you know the TV shows so when I started doing that I could only hunt till the 15th of October then I had to spend 14 15 hours a day seven days a week cranking out the 13 episodes for television and at least one or two DVDs that we would sell wouldn't sell what we'd give away if you subscribe to the magazine, which we kind of still do. So I was, I was pretty busy um, doing, doing that after I self-taught my, self-taught myself how to do Final Cut Pro, and um, did it all upstairs in my house, basically. And I kind of flim-flammed those guys a bit. They didn't know what was coming down, and I did, and. What you usually used to do, you used to use Beta SP because it had over 700 lines. But once you put it on TV, you had to have, I think it was around 450 line screens. Okay? Well, the way they used to, they used to edit, they take them, the way they, it was all done on tape. 
And so they run the tape and then they, they would cut what they needed and put it on, splice it. And then when they all got done, that was a, work, a working master. The same thing my dad did in film. Then they would have to take and copy that. And when they copy, they lost a generation, which bumped it down to like 500 or above the 450. Okay, you get it? Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> I shouldn't be saying that. Realtree bought all new beta stuff, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of this new stuff, you know, to do this. And by the time they got done, their line screen was down there 450, you know, whatever. So my first one I did... I went to a TV, a TV station in Kansas, a big time TV station, and I was watching them, and they were doing it in a computer, and they were doing it with a thing called Avid, which was a French program. So they could put it in the computer, do everything, spit it back out onto an SB tape with no generation loss. The light went off my head. So I was using one chip, and then I got a three-chip camera so it wouldn't bleed. Because that one chip, the red or fluorescent orange, would bleed because one chip, all the color, all three colors would go through that one chip, and so the red would bleed. Well, Sony and then Canon, six months later, they came out with these, these little, not little, uh, <coughs> XL, which was a three-chip camera, so every RGB went through its own chip, so there wasn't no bleeding. And it was like a 500 or 475 line screen. And so I used them. And then I got, I got Final Cut Pro. And I was sticking it in the computer and spitting it out at 450. Never told the Outdoor Channel I was doing this. They thought I was doing SB Beta and doing like all the rest of these guys were doing it. <laughs> and I wasn't. Got giant cameras. And those SB <laughs> cameras are huge. And yeah. I got this little camera. I'm running around filming all this and doing all this. And I did it for years before they kind of caught on and, and the people started doing it. But I, I'm going to say I was the first one on the Outdoor Channel because if they probably knew I was doing it that way, they wouldn't have let me on there anyway. But, you know, they have a skeptogram or something. So they look at, they can look and see, and they were counting how many, making sure that you had a, over 450 line screens. Because you, you can imagine how all these guys with their Harry Olmoner cameras trying to, trying to get on TV with mm -hmm. just junk that was looks like all washed out and stuff <clears throat> so that's how how I went and I we kept up on that we kept up on the printing and and using computers and everything was Apple I used Apple mm -hmm. I tell people I didn't keep but I generated millions and millions of dollars with Apple Apple stuff and I still use Apple these guys don't but I yeah, we use there's only well a couple, our couple computers in this office at yeah all. They, they use it they use it, uh, yeah. They use it for putting the magazine together, and they use it for uh, video. video in our in our video suite. But mm -hmm. um, that's that's kind that's of just information. So, two thousand seventeen marks the thirtieth anniversary of yeah. Eastman's Hunting Journal and the, right. the company as itself. Amazing. Yeah, it's a long time. I got, I got a little story for you like this. So about the third magazine came out. My wife is doing all the typing and editing. She's really quite talented and doing putting the magazine together. And I'm doing a lot of writing. In fact, I couldn't find any writing writers, so I even made up people's names. One of them was Frenchie Ludbetter. 
Yeah. You know? And, and when she's typing away and she's, she turns to me, she's, she says to me, she says, don't give all this out at once. She says, How, we'll run out of material. And I just started laughing. <laughs> she didn't have a clue, you know, how this all worked. I said, no, no, we're going to have plenty forever. I said, look at Field and Stream and Outdoor Life. Look, they've been around 100 years and they're still doing it. So don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> 30 years later, we haven't 30, run out of material yet. No, 30 years later, yeah, it's... Uh, Oh, 30 years, it, it went by quite fast, like I said, because of running, literally running around and doing all this. And there was times 30 years ago that I would fly in to Cody, come, come to the house, throw my laundry down. My wife would quickly wash my laundry. I'd get in, I'd get in like at noon. And so she'd quickly wash my laundry and, and iron the stuff, pack it all up. You know, six o'clock in the morning, I'd be on the plane and again going, going to like uh, Oregon or Seattle or somewhere to one of those ISC shows. It was that trying to make this thing work. So, yeah. And that hasn't changed much. We still do no. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, our sons do it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Now they have to do it. And, I, and they whine, and I just go, you're not going to get much sympathy out of me. <laughs> Right? Yeah, no, exactly. And boy, everything had to be self-taught back in the day. It's so wild how you'd gather that information about the editing and using the smaller cameras. Uh, there was no internet. There was no way to look it up. And like I say, no template or no path. You just had to have a vision and talk to guys and keep picking up information and then keep evolving as you went. And the, and the brand has continued to evolve to this day. Um, you know, and it's still based around quality hunting. It's just a new age hunting and new age tactics. But uh, it's just wild to hear about the start and the beginning of it and the commitment you had to it. Yeah, well, I, I've always been, I wouldn't say innovative because I'm not very smart. And I'll, I'll tell people if they want to know. I don't even have a college education. I barely got through high school. But I always was able to look at stuff, I thought, and figure out and just keep doing it and working it until it came about. I'm dyslexic and I should have been left-handed. My father made me right-handed or tried to. And so things don't come easy for me, but I just stuck with it and, st and, I, and that's what I did. Stick with it, stick with it. I can remember I tried to do the first magazine on that Mac and I got it all in there and, and I didn't have the right setting and the whole magazine shifted. And I threw my hands up and so my wife sat down and, and then Unfortunately for her, for 20 years, she <laughs> was putting it together. But that, yeah, I just, you know, looked around and saw stuff and tried, yeah. Yeah, nobody told me. And, but I told other people, and it, it helped them, too. They, oh, oh, using those cameras? Yeah, don't tell the outdoor channel. <laughs> yeah, keep that one to yourself. Well, and they did the same thing. I shouldn't, you probably will edit this out. They did the same thing with HD. They went out when they went public. He held. I went and talked to Wade Sherman, only time I've ever been to their office. And he says, look at Eastman, look, this is the new thing. And he had a big TV there, and he had this show done on it, and it was done in HD. Holy smokes. He said, yeah, that's what it's all going to. He said, yeah, we bought all new equipment, and, and our cameras weighed, I don't know how much, big, heavy, 30, 40-pound cameras that, that had HD in them. And but they couldn't shoot at low light. I go, what happens if you're hunting in the evening? Oh no, no, we got you know, I have to have light. No, I, I'm I'm going to myself, I'm waiting. 
and I never got we never got into it until they really made us because I could see and and they used that equipment for about three years and then just had to shelf it because it was outdated it was too big newer stuff come down smaller that you could use and stuff like that instead of waiting they just did this just jumped into it well, it's impra- it was impractical. It's impractical for I mean, who's going to take a thirty-pound camera in the backcountry besides my grandfather? I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. Good luck doing a backpack hunt. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. Well, my dad did with these. You know, that's but <clears throat> with this digital stuff, I knew. You know, they had these dig- little digital, little digital cassettes that mm-hmm. you put them in there. And you had to be careful because those heads would. I'd wear a heads out of a camera about every two years. Oh, wow. get, even trying to clean them. There's a the number of kill scenes that got ruined. Another, yeah, because the heads were bad. Oh, and yeah, you didn't know it because yeah. the because the monitor on the camera was recording different than the than the actual uh, tape. So you get back and oh, the kill scene's ruined. You know, all you have to do is one speck of dust on that head, and then ruin the head and ruin the, you know, and. So there were there was a, there was issues and stuff you had to deal with, but trials and tribulations. I can't imagine getting home and then finding out that you didn't get the kill shot or it didn't come through. We sure got it easy nowadays. Sure. Well, we still have missed. We've missed one the other last year, and it was done on you know now they put them on a, they put them on chips, but mm-hmm. they the card got corrupt. Oh, card no. got corrupt. So the issue is there, but not as bad uh-huh. as it used to be. And there's no more heads. That was the issue. You had a head where the tape would go across that head, and, and, and the electro- electronic would put the image on there. And if you got a little speck of dust, that was the end of that. Mm-hmm. And so that those are all gone out of those cameras now. So it's done just straight with electric. I guess electric right smack into the chip. I guess I don't know. What's What's one of the one of the big triumphs over the last thirty years? Would you say? For me or the magazine? Both. You can do either or, or both. Biggest triumph for me is a cowboy in, from Wyoming that didn't hardly get a high school education, he works his ass off, can make something of him. In America, that can only happen. And for the magazine, it's what our mission statement says, and as little it's, some people think it's corny, but it's true. I started a magazine to help guys fulfill their dream of taking a trophy of a lifetime, Western Trophy of a Lifetime, and that's basically what it's about. So, And hopefully we still do that because I saw the faces of those guys in Pennsylvania. They thought they had nothing against outfitters. I was one, and there's a purpose for them, but these guys thought all the land out here was like in Pennsylvania, and you couldn't go hunting by yourself, and you couldn't learn learn how to be a western hunter and those guys in Pennsylvania or back east or California there are a lot of them really good hunters and I saw that and they just needed some information to help them do that and it's it's a heritage that was one of the reasons why the people came across over here from from Europe it was the ability to hunting and not having the king and and the dukes wanting all the country and the wildlife. So 
Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, you're an uh, absolute pioneer in the industry, and being able to start this and, and uh, keep things rolling and then pass it on to your family and, and see your sons take over the business. But uh, it, it's alive and well today, and, and we're still at the, at the forefront of the industry and getting guys information. And, and I love how the brand keeps evolving, and now you know we've, we've got a podcast and we, we all the stuff that we do on the Internet and the, the blog and the newsletter and, and the video is just... Um, so next level, but it, it's all from what you created and all from your vision in the, in, in the early days. Uh, just amazing to hear those stories and hear how everything started and to hear that, like you say, the biggest triumph is, is effort equals success and you had a vision and, and worked towards it and able to accomplish your goal to build something you know bigger than, than you could even imagine back in the day. So um, just so interesting to hear about. And, uh, and I just want to thank you a bunch for being on and sharing your story with me. Well, thanks for having me. I don't know much about this podcast deal you guys are doing but i hear it's pretty good so <laughs> well, good luck all... on this, this other part of the company or whatever it is <laughs> it, it's all new and it's the same thing as we're just learning as we go and trying to get better at it but um yeah it's an awesome platform to share stories and get to get to hear the real personalities of the the people involved behind the company so no this is just great thanks a bunch for doing it mike well thank you for having me Man, oh man, uh, Mike is such a great storyteller. It's so cool to sit down with him and hear the the start of that company and the trials and tribulations he went through. Um, 30 years at, at Eastman's, and it's all attributed to to his start and perseverance, you know, in the outdoor industry, which was no easy feat. It's just amazing. Um, but but really cool to sit down with him, and I can't wait to do more with him. I, I want to pick his brain on, on high country mule deer hunting and elk hunting and, and also on photography. His photography is just off the charts. So uh, hopefully I get a chance to sit down with him again and, and do another one. Um, but today's episode was brought to you by Beyond the Grid Hunting TV. So again, this is Eastman's hunting TV show uh, that's specifically just on the internet. So go check it out, guys. couple episodes out. Third episode is, is going to be loosed here pretty quick, and, and they're going to keep coming out with new episodes. So um, just really cool and, and a great branch of the company, you know, going more on the internet side of things. So um, check that out and, and, oh, make sure you get involved with, uh, HR 621, that, that bill that's in the house right now. Um, you know, so we can continually enjoy our public lands. And so our kids can have the same opportunity that we had. Uh, don't let those guys sell off our public land. So get involved, make sure you send your letters, uh, become a member of backcountry hunters and anglers. They're a great organization. Uh, so make sure you guys do that. So that's, that's a wrap for this week. Um, I've got some good podcasts coming up here. Um, I, I've recorded some good ones and, and some good new guests coming up, so I'm really excited about it. So I'll check in with you guys next week.